Good morning again. Um, If you have your Bible there, you might like to turn to John chapter 7, please. John chapter 7, and we're reading from uh, verse 25. Thanks to Valerie for reading so well. It's, again, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit is what we are looking at this morning. And Jesus, I suppose he, he mentioned it to the woman at the well in Samaria, but he says it here again in a very obtuse, kind of obscure way. But John chapter 7, verse 25, it says, At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, Isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live, scattered among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive up to that time, The Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said he is the Christ. And we leave our reading at at that point. Um, And so, just adjust that. Yeah. Um, This was Jesus continuing teaching people in in Jerusalem, relatively early in his ministry, um, but it's the Feast of Tabernacles we're at in this case, or the Feast of Booths, as they call it. It's when they used to um, remember the wandering in the desert, and they used to build shelters and live in them. <clears throat> and the people are listening, and they're curious as to know who is Jesus, where did he come from, how did he get such teaching? Um, and as I said, Jesus, last, you know, a couple of weeks ago, was talking about Jesus sometimes uses a very intriguing way of catching people's attention to to say he doesn't give them the full story he lets people figure things out for themselves Um, because often you will think more about something when you have to figure it out for yourself but they were asking basically who is he where did he come from where is he going now so jesus answer is 
Yes, you know me, you know where I come from, and you know him who sent me. And they understood enough to know that Jesus was claiming to have come from God, and it enraged them so much that they tried to seize Jesus to to take hold of him and, and basically to perhaps put him to death. But it says Jesus evaded their grasp because his time had not yet come. God has a time. He has a purpose. And just as Christ would only die on the cross at Calvary, our days are numbered and our lives are in his hand. And it's a comfort to know in a world of uncertainty. But Jesus then goes on to say that he's going to leave them soon. Um, And he tells them also, where I am going, you cannot come. And the obvious question to that is, well, where are you going? Where do you intend to go that we cannot find you? Are you going to live among the Greeks? What, What are you talking about? And it was later to his beloved disciples that he was speaking in in John chapter 14. Remember that phrase that all of us know. Um, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I'm sure whether you speak English or speak Portuguese or whatever language you speak this morning, all of us know that verse. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus goes on to say then to, to his disciples, I am going there to prepare a place for you. He tells his disciples that they can come, but he's telling the people here, where I am going, you cannot come. So he's, he's speaking in a very, very convoluted way, but he's, he's telling the people here that they cannot come with him. And it's all centering around this Jesus. Who is Jesus? Where is he going? And what will happen when he has gone there? Because Jesus is doing great miracles at the moment, and it's all very interesting. So it's very eye-catching. But what about when Jesus is gone? What will follow then? Because rightly enough, um, it ought to be all about Jesus, but he would one day leave. What would happen when Jesus leaves? So he is preparing his people for that, preparing the world for that. And there are a number of, I suppose you'd say, types or reminders in, in, in the Bible about events that happened in the past. And by that, I mean, uh, for example, the Passover. Passover, we know the story of the Passover. The blood was painted on the, on the lintel and on the sides of the door. And when, when the angel in, in um, Egypt saw that the angel of death, he passed by, he passed over those houses, <clears throat> and the firstborn was not put to death. So the Jews continued to remember, even to this day, they remember the Passover. It's a reminder of how God rescued his people. There were other uh, festivals, other days, like the Day of Atonement, when they had the scapegoat. The scapegoat was the one. There were two goats. One was slaughtered, and his blood was, was put on the altar in, in, in the temple. The other goat was the, the priest was laid his hands on them, symbolic of laying the sin on the goat, and the goat would be brought out into the wilderness then, and let go free in the wilderness. And it was, it was a picture of their sins being carried away out into the wilderness. God was removing their sins from them. But there was another picture as well that God painted, and it was something that we're not too familiar with, and it's what Jesus refers to here when he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And by that, Jesus meant that the, the, on, the, on the Feast of Tabernacles, the priests would go down to the pool of Siloam. They would scoop up 
some of the water and in front of the people they would pour it out. And that was a reminder of God providing for his people. When Moses was in the desert, he struck the rock and water gushed out. And so this was reminding them, God not just um, saved you in Egypt. He didn't just take away your sins using the scapegoat as an illustration, but he provided for you in in the thirst, in the wilderness, in the desert. God provided for you. Um, And he spoke about this as well a little bit to the woman at the well in Samaria um, when he spoke to her about, the, you know, I will take away your thirst. And the woman says, give me this water so I won't have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus says, in looking, and, and this was the last day of the, the great feast when the water was poured out. So Jesus would have, as it were, you saw the picture earlier of the priest pouring out the water, just as Moses struck the rock and God provided for you water in abundance. I am the living water. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. If anyone desires, come to me and drink. Because within man, there is a thirst. And and the picture of thirst is throughout the Old Testament. You know, I'm sure we're all familiar with the Psalms. I hope we are. Psalm 42, when it says, As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul thirsts for you, for the living God. 63 says, earnestly I seek you, my body longs for you in a dry and, and weary land. And Amos the prophet spoke about a thirst as well, not a thirst, a physical thirst, but a thirst for the word of God. He said there would be a famine, a thirst for the word of God. And so in a, in a country not like Ireland where we have pretty constant rain, but in a dry and weary land, Jesus knew the value of water, and he used it as a picture to say to people, your greatest thirst is not physical. Your greatest thirst is spiritual, and I can provide for that. He said it to the woman at the well. He's saying it to the people here. He's saying, you've been reminded of God's provision for you in the wilderness. Now I am providing for your spiritual needs such as you've never known. Jesus was saying, I will satisfy. Only I will satisfy. Not only will I satisfy, but I will cause you to be a means of blessing to others if you come to me and drink living water. You, God, will use you to satisfy the need. But then the question is, if Jesus is going away, How can this be the case? Yes, Jesus was ministering to his people here, ministering, and they were taking it in, for want of a better word, and they were saying, this is wonderful teaching, wonderful healings, but what about when you're gone, Jesus? What will happen then? And Jesus is basically saying, John explains to us that he would send the Spirit who would be the source of living water when Jesus is gone. He'd already spoken, as I said, to the woman at the well, He went on to speak to her as well of spiritual worship. Um, And he spoke to Nicodemus before the woman at the well. Again, we know Jesus says, unless you're born of water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. But it was not just a blessing would bestow on his people. Because in the past, in the Old Testament, God came upon his people in the person of the Holy Spirit and he blessed them. He blessed them with spiritual understanding But now Jesus spoke a bit further. He spoke not just about the Spirit coming on people, but that he would send the Holy Spirit 
Spirit and people would receive the Spirit as never before. And that's, of course, what, what happened at Pentecost, and we know the story of Pentecost. It was the Jewish day. The word Pentecost means uh, pente, I think, is, is five. It's the remembering of the giving of the law, the five books of Moses. And so the Jews remember the day of Pentecost when God spoke to his people. He gave them his law, and it was a, a special day for them. The, the, the law was given at Pentecost, but we as Christians... No, Pentecost in a different way. It was the receiving of the Holy Spirit, God coming to make his dwelling in his people as never before. And that's what happened for us on Pentecost. What, what it meant basically was the Holy Spirit finally came, um, and Peter quoted the, the prophet Joel on the day of Pentecost. He said, In the last days I will pour out my Spirit on all people, even my servants, both men and women, and they will prophesy I will show wonders in the heavens above and on the earth below, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's God's promise through Joel, repeated by Peter to his people. I am coming now to take up my dwelling in my people. What was to be the the work then of the Holy Spirit? And that's what we want to focus on this morning in a, a very, very lengthy introduction. When the Spirit comes and indwells us, if you are a Christian, The Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you. God has taken up residence in you. Now the dwelling of God is with man, is what the scriptures tell us. Well, previously, you see, before Pentecost, the the Holy Spirit did not indwell people. But after after Jesus' atonement, when he dealt with our sin, when he had become man and restored man's relationship with God, man was now a fit vessel for God to make his dwelling in. Because God could say, there is no longer any sin in this person. I am happy to take up my dwelling where there is no sin. I cannot dwell where sin abides. What does that mean for us then? It means the birth of the church. It means God's people formed for his glory here on earth are now the place where we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And there is in man, whether we acknowledge it or not, there is a thirst for God, a longing for meaning, for identity, and and for purpose in this life. And Jesus promises that he will fill that void, but now he does it not himself personally, but in the person of the Holy Spirit after he's gone. And Jesus said at one stage, he said, it is better for you that I go away, for if I go away, I will send the counselor, the Spirit, who will remind you of all things that I've said. Um, And it was on the day of Pentecost that, as I said, the Spirit finally came. What then is the work of the Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do in the church? What does he do within this world? Well, we're going to look at a few of those things this morning. The first thing is, Jesus said he will convict the world with regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of sin. If you are a Christian, if you are aware of your sin, it is thanks to the work of the Holy Spirit in you. It is he who causes you to cry out for mercy. It is he who causes you to see Jesus for who he is. And we see it, for example, if if you remember the incident of the Philippian jailer. Remember the story when Paul and Silas 
were in prison about midnight, it said. They had been beaten and whipped. They were singing songs of praise despite that. Suddenly there was an earthquake. The jailer rushed in and he was about to kill himself. And and Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. No one has escaped. And the jailer fell on his knees before Paul and said, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And And that is the conviction of the Holy Spirit convincing people of the reality of their sin, of the holiness of God. But it's not just sinners whom the Holy Spirit convicts. The Holy Spirit also convicts Christians of sin. And if you're a believer this morning, be thankful to the Holy Spirit for such a work in your life because it's an indication that you are a Christian. If you have no sense of wrongdoing in your life, I would call in question your your very salvation. Remember the story of of David in the Old Testament. Um, David, you know, he committed adultery and murder, and the prophet Nathan came to him and explained, using an illustration, he explained to him, you have committed murder, you have committed adultery. And David said, I have sinned. And David wrote the the richest psalms of of repentance, psalms of, of, of incredibly bitter grief at his own sin. He was conscious of his sin. That was the work of the Holy Spirit in David. Indeed, it could be said that David, though he had damaged his relationship with God, it does damage your relationship with God when you sin. But David now knew the mercy, the forgiveness of God, as perhaps never before. Though he he felt a, a sense of guilt probably for the rest of his life, but now he knew the grace and the mercy of God as never before. He knew forgiveness. It, it happened in the Old Testament, but it was still the work of one and the same spirit. Though he was not indwelling David, he was still bringing people under conviction then. But it happens in believers as well. And, and for example, you see Paul writing in, in Romans chapter 7 when he says, I do not understand what I do for the good that I want to do. This I do not do, but I keep on doing evil. He is saying, who will rescue me from this body of death? I am so conscious of my sinful ways, my sinful nature. And, and he says, thanks be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God for Jesus. Again, that is the work of the Holy Spirit convicting believers because the reality is that you and I, in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, we continue to sin. And if we are indifferent to it, if we are indifferent to sin, I would question, are we believers at all? Because the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin, make us aware of our sin and of God's holiness. So the other things that the Holy Spirit does, it is he who gives us new birth. Jesus said that when he was speaking to Nicodemus. He said, it is the Spirit who gives life. And we're enabled to call God our, our Father. We are adopted into his family and become heirs of eternal life with Christ through the Holy Spirit working in us. And a person is, Jesus said, you are born of water and the Spirit. And he says, that which is flesh gives birth to flesh. Each one of us is here this morning because we are born of of flesh and blood. But if you are a child of God, 
it is because it is the Holy Spirit has given you life. It is spiritual birth. And Paul then says in in chapter 8 of Romans, he says, we have received the spirit of sonship by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And and speaking earlier, Jesus in in chapter 6 had said, the flesh counts for nothing. It is the Spirit who gives life. So it is the Spirit who gives us new birth. It is he and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, person never folks never refer to the holy spirit as an it you know you wouldn't refer to your child as an it or your father you refer to him or or her in the same way the holy spirit is a person he it is who convicts us of sin he it is who gives us new life the the next thing that i would look at the spirit does for us um it's something jesus is referring to in chapter 14 of john He will guide us into all truth, he said, because the reality is that you and I are blind spiritually. Without the aid of the Holy Spirit, we may desire to know God. We may be curious. We may desire to understand his word. But it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can comprehend spiritual truths. It's why Paul says in in 1 Corinthians, he says, The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Who knows the thoughts of man except the man's spirit within him? So also, he says, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. But, he says, we have the mind of Christ. If you are a Christian, you have the ability to understand God's word. You have the ability to to comprehend spiritual truths that you never once could. Because it is the spirit God has given us. And he who does not have the spirit of God, Paul says, cannot understand the truths of God's word. And it's not just understanding the truth that the spirit is active, but in in declaring it also. It's it's why the prophets in the Old Testament preached the word of God. The writers in the New Testament wrote down what we have before us now, because it was all men speaking through the power of the spirit leading them. God speaks to man through man through the Holy Spirit in them. And as well as being the spirit of truth who who guides us, he is the spirit who helps us in our weakness. Um, So it says, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that we cannot express. We are urged to pray in the spirit at all times. Further, Jesus, when he was speaking to the the woman at the well, Valerie read earlier when he said, a time is coming when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. No longer would it be by sacrifice, by ritual, by ceremony. God's highest creation, that is man. You are, you are in the image of God. All other creatures are not created in the image of God. But you, believer, are a living soul. Sometimes it's, it's said and has a soul But that doesn't really carry the truth of it. Man is a soul. He has a body. You are an eternal soul. God has made you in his image. You are precious to him. You are his his highest creation. And what God desires is is spiritual worship from us. He enables us to, to worship him. Jesus had said to the woman, those who worship do so in spirit and truth, because by nature... 
we, we revert to ceremony. And yet, would you, if you were wanting to talk to your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your spouse, your child, would you use ceremony? Would you use ritual? It would be cold. It would be indifferent. And equally, God is a living God, and he desires personal relationship with us. God says, I am who I am. Worship me for who I am. You thought I was altogether like you. I am who I am. You come to me and meet me as a personal God. And when writing in Romans again, Paul says, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual worship. A true worship is, is a life lived consciously uh, for God with, with all areas of our lives under his watchful eye, an awareness of the fact that everything you do is under the eye, the watchful eye of God your Father in heaven. I remember um, an older Christian man, he said to me, his mother had a little sign written above the sink, just on the windowsill above the sink, and the sign said, worship begins here. Worship begins here in the mundane, ordinary things of life, whether it is driving your car, bringing your children to school, teaching them, washing the floor or washing the dishes. Worship is everything you do. It is the spirits, finally, who keeps us true to our faith. And Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. No one. If you are a believer, you belong to him. God doesn't make mistakes. He didn't say, oh, I'm going to save John or Jim or Pat. And then they decide, well, I don't want to be saved. I will go. God does not make mistakes. If he saves you, he will keep you. And that is by the power of the spirit within you. If he calls you, you will come. And if you come, he will keep you. And it says in, in Philippians, it says, he who began a good work in you, will be faithful to complete it. And that is the Holy Spirit. He will keep you faithful to him. Having believed, Paul wrote, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. That's what he says in Ephesians. He, re he repeats it in Second Corinthians when he says, he has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. If you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit within you. You are guaranteed God will keep you. But the, the things I said earlier about if you have no sense of, of responsibility for sin, then I would question, are you truly a believer? You should question yourself. We would have strayed away, any of us believers, we would have strayed away to heresy or to sin or simply drifted away were it not for the goodness of the Holy Spirit within us. The Holy Spirit, we are called to live by the Spirit. And this is just a, a last point, really, that though we are children of God and though we want to live a life that is worthy of Jesus and though we want to be good, we struggle because we do have this sinful nature. But it's where the work of the Holy Spirit who lives in us comes to the fore. Because, you see, the sinful old nature still rises up. It, the sinful nature, he is dead but it still rises up again and again, and there is a battle. 
and the spirit, spirit desires what is contrary to the sinful nature. The sinful nature expresses itself in, in indulgence in what pleases itself. But then there's one passage in scripture that I'd say most of you here know. It's called the fruit of the spirit. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self And possibly there are one or two that I've missed. But I think most of us know them. And we take satisfaction. Yeah, I know that verse. I know that power. We take pride in that satisfaction. Be satisfied not in knowing them, but in doing those things. Letting this, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the, the gentleness, the kindness, the self-control, let those things be manifested in your life. That is evidence of the Holy Spirit within you. Since we live by the Spirit, Paul wrote, let us keep in the Spirit. The Spirit who cries out, Abba, Father, who longs to please his Father in heaven. Not offending our Lord, who keeps us true to his calling. Live according to his ways. It's the calling of every person who says they're a follower of Jesus to live in step with the Spirit. And all that is the work of the Holy Spirit in, in the life of God's people. There are many aspects to the work of the Holy Spirit. He was involved in creation. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Spirit is involved in many other things. But I was focusing this morning on the Holy Spirit working among God's people. Let's give thanks to God for what he does in us. Let's give thanks to God because the reality is that as Christians, we pray to God our Father as Christians, we know Jesus, we can relate to Jesus, we love Jesus, but let's not neglect the Holy Spirit. He is God, just as the Father, just as Jesus. So the Holy Spirit. Learn to know the Holy Spirit as you've come to know Jesus and let him work in you what is good and true, that you would be a godly Christian. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I give you thanks for the fact you have given us your word. Your word teaches us many things, but Lord, we can only understand it with your aid through the power of your spirit within us. I pray, O oh gracious God, that each one of us this morning would seek you to live, living out the fruit of the spirit in our lives day by day, even moment by moment, that we would be godly people seeking to be just as the Holy Spirit is holy, that we too would be holy. Hear us, gracious God, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.